But behind every KPI is, is a process that's key. Um, and you find out what about that process um, that if you made it faster or you made it more reliable or you were able to get better quality and, and maintain and make the safety better, um, what would that be? And I think that's, you know, the, the steps that we look at is first is, is it going to make um, the job safer? Can it make the job faster? Um, can it be, can it make it so one person do, can do it when two are required and do it safely? Right. And then can the technology do something that humans can't? And welcome everybody to a quality podcast season two. We're pleased to have with us today, Sean Driscoll. Sean is the president of Driscoll Organizational Solutions and Sean wants to talk to us today about a very interesting topic that is close to um, Jake and I, which is people-centered technology improvements. So we all know the horror stories about implementing technology that uh, really doesn't help. And Jake and I have been on the receiving end of that pretty hardcore. So uh, when Sean reached out to us, we said, this is it. Love to have this conversation. Sean, how are you? Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Good deal. So, Sean, for our listeners out there, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and your company and set some context? Sure. So, uh, this Driscoll Organizational Solutions, uh, we work on change enablement. So, it's not just um, a cookie cutter approach or templates to um, helping people manage change, but helping to, them to set up the environment so that they can be successful and um, get into uh, sensing uh, changes coming down. So, you know, we believe that once you write it down, then you're limited. Um, you know, there's a point where you, you have to commit. Um, but why walk into a situation without first understanding the people, the culture, what technology they use and what capital they have available? Uh, then after that point, then we get into, okay, so what's our approach? I really like that approach, Sean, because uh, it's a little more intuitive and frankly intelligent. Um, of course, I did the... Um, what is that CPM or whatever training many years ago and have managed some projects in the cookie cutter approach. Um, it just doesn't work. You know, by the time your document and model gets complex enough to kind of deal with the real world, it's too cumbersome to, to even use. Right. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about your approach um, to helping organizations uh, change and improve. So we want to understand why they why they want to change. So uh, is it outside uh, forces in, internally? Um, right now, a lot of businesses are having a hard time with um, staffing, uh, finding people to uh, to man um, the equipment or to to do the processes, um, whether it's applications or some sort of information processing. Um, and so we, we want to understand what's the, the value that they have. Um, I'm, I'm working with a, a multi-billion dollar company that um, I asked them, what kind of business are you? And I narrowed it down to, are you a sales company? Are you an engineering company? Or are you a manufacturing company? And I didn't get agreement. Um, and so they've been in business for decades and they still don't understand what kind of business they are. And I'm being a little facetious when I say that, but I think that's really important um, because that's, 
you determines where the expertise lies, right? So um, if you're a sales company, that's going to really wag the dog from engineering and manufacturing standpoint. Um, you've got to be prepared for that. Um, and then just throwing robotics or throwing uh, robotic process automation, RPAs at stuff um, because it's not going well. We, we all know that that just makes waste faster. Um, and so we want to get to what the value is that uh, people are supposed to be creating, you know, fit form and function, whether it's information or a, a product. Um, and then, then we have something centered on, then we have something we can start building off of. And then when you, when you talk to the people who do the, the, the work, um, you know, you, you ask them about the process and they're like, well, it's a process. Well, it's just a word to, to describe the group of activities you do to get a certain effect. Right. So how do you know when you hand this off, that it's good, what, you know, and it's interesting the conversations you have because everybody's got their own kind of different way of determining if it's good enough to hand to the next person. Um, you know, it's kind of like throwing that, that ball down the lane, you know, you grimace, you know, you're not going to get a strike. Um, so people doing the work, actually creating the value, understand that whether they have the words for it or not. So uh, that's really important to us. And it, it seems like you're going slow and a lot of leaders don't like that, but and tell me you got to go slow to go fast. And so let's get this. I, I love it. So why do you think, like, I don't know if this is anecdotal or there's some statistics there. Why do you think we continue to see technology deployed that doesn't make the employee's life any better? Well, because some people have been successful for it, right? So they, they have uh, some stories to tell. But unfortunately, those are far and few between. And it's kind of like, you know, the urban legends. <laughs> they just get you know, repeated over and over and they get bigger and bigger and like, look, they're using AI. It's like, well, there's really no such thing as AI yet, right? So we still need subject matter experts. You know, IBM's Watson requires SMEs around the world to help feed it the right information to give it the right answers. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's people, you know, some somebody bragging on the golf course or somewhere about, hey, you know, we got this in place and we're getting these results. Well, you know, they may, but how did they get there? That's more important. Yeah. So what, what's your approach whenever you come into an agreement, you're just doing some discovery and there's already technology in place that directly does not, you know, suit the value proposition. What is, what is that approach? What do you do? What actions and context do you take there? Well, so I, I ran into this problem a couple of years ago. It was a big pharma a packaging line. And um, they just kept adding sensors to stuff and they had this dashboard and they were measuring everything. And, um, and engineering kind of took over production. So that was the first thing to have a conversation is who owns production? Well, production does. So, you, you know, engineers come out, they need to ask permission to shut the machines down. They don't schedule the machines, right? So, you know, you got to keep your eye on what the, the customer delivery is. What does the customer want? Um, and then to look at what problems were they having? And so at this point, it came down to talking to the person in charge of operations. And um, I said, you're part of the problem. And uh, he literally took a, a misstep when he heard that. And he's like, okay. I said, because you, everybody goes out there and they want to fix it. And so they touch it and they change it, right? And then you have people who think it's an art. And so they're tweaking stuff, even though things are going well. So let's just get the OEMs in and set it the way they had designed the piece of equipment and run it from there and see what happens. Um, and then we start looking at when the problem happens, let's trace it back to the root cause. 
So it was really kind of slow for them because they were spending money having vendors and engineers and, and more sensors added on and all this other stuff. And when we got to that point, it became very clear that the, the solution was a lot easier than they thought. Um, and it really, a couple of them was, you know, it was the supplier. They, they said that the cardboard was coming in at specification, but found out they were putting it on the top shelf in the warehouse of a 30 foot warehouse in the middle of summer. And the humidity levels weren't there. And so the cardboard wasn't behaving like it was supposed to. And it was crashing when it got into the machine. I mean, just those kind of basic things. But when you start mudding the waters, it's it's hard to, to see clearly what's going on. So, yeah, it's it's getting and and uh, making things clear. Right. So it's just saying, OK, this is what's important. That's not right. So uh, souping that up or making that faster is, is not going to help. Yeah, I love it. So. On the one hand, we have uh, companies that are sort of playing the lottery, right? Like, well, this company did it. They had good results. Let's roll the dice and see, you know, what happens. I took a class on ERP implementation. Um, I can't remember the statistics. This was like 2012, but I want to say successful ERP implementation rate was like 7%. And so, of course, the question was, well, then why the hell does anybody do this? And, you know, all the professor could say was, well, if it does work, there's a lot of rewards, you know? Right. So we have people playing the lottery. And then, as you pointed out, you know, the approach that some organizations take to technology, because it lacks an organizational structure, like a business operating system to guide the uh, implementation of the technology, such as a PDCA cycle or whatever your tool of choice. Um, too many fingers in the pie, right? I've seen that a lot as well. So issues, right? And you're sort of um, saying that people-centered technology improvements is uh, kind of the the foundation or prerequisite to really getting what you want uh, out of your technology. And I guess for me, when I hear these conversations and, you know, engage, um, I keep bumping up against this thing, right, where it seems like there's just giant chunks of the business world that are consumed with the idea of technology for technology's sake. Uh, I know there's people that, you know, make a living selling technology, so we're going to ignore them. Um, obviously, they uh, are selling technology, right? But I'm talking about, you know, Walmart, right? Just a company that's not in the tech space. But you'll have business leaders. And I've heard, you know, in board meetings, in high-level management meetings, we need more technology. Mm-hmm. Really? You know, like... it. it you're obviously jumping to a solution, right? What's the actual problem? So can you talk a little bit about problem identification, you know, how technology might help and the difference between people-centered technology versus technology for technology's sake? Yeah, so when we look at the why, uh, we wanna hear the voice of the customer. So what is the customer saying? How are they using the product or service or the information that's provided? And then we look also at the financials and, and the um, metrics, um, the measures of success for the company. And, so, and that kind of that does point us to the direction uh, that probably needs the most attention. And 
like any problem, there's um, usually more than one root cause, right? And they just kind of compound each other. Um, and so, you know, the, the approach is, okay, so, and here's the thing is, it's kind of like these prepackaged things, right? So lean, um, I think some people's definition of lean is good. Uh, a, a lot of people's is not uh, because there's no standard for it, right? And it's actually just kind of a label of these things from an MIT study on Toyota um, that they try to say, what can we pull from this, right? Um, so when people say, well, we've got some waste in this process or we've got uh, long lead times, they're like, well, let's just do lead. It's like, well, what exactly are you trying to fix? Um, so that gets to people using technology for technology's sake. Well, why don't we just get a automated baggage handling system so that the ticket agents can take it and put it on the belt and it'll show up at the plane and everything will be right. Well, the problem is that Colorado stopped, tried that at one time uh, and they spent um, like a billion dollars. Uh, it was like 20 years ago. Never got it working. Never. Uh, they had some really major issues with it. Um, it's just too complex of a system. Uh, but it sounded nice, right? And somebody was able to sell them on that system. Um, but the the variables are too much, right? So there's too many things going on, too many initial conditions. And so instead of trying to come up with all the algorithms necessary to, to decide what a human would do, because you'll never get there, right? Uh, there's always stuff to come up, is put the person and find out how you can keep them doing what they do best and not have to worry about all the other stuff. Um, and that's a much better approach because and then it, you'll get down to where like the surgeon just shows up, starts the operation, you know, sutures up, you know, needles up the person and then they walk out and they go to the next operating room and they do that over and over again, right? Instead of them laying out the tools or directing people to lay out the, the instruments and those type of things. It's the same thing in the office. Why should people have to go hunt for information? Why isn't it at their fingertips? I think if you if people look at that, you're going to get a lot further. You're going to have a lot better quality. You're going to shorten your lead times and it's going to cost a lot less um, to, to do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. And I have seen a lot of this. I don't know how to phrase it. Maybe I'm going to take a stab at a phrase and say it's like band-aid jing, where we're sitting here creating an extra customized solution to solve one problem for the business on top of the other, on top of the other, on top of the other, until what you have is you have a process so convoluted, it doesn't even make sense to the people that are doing it. And like the clarity is just absolutely gone. And then when we go the route of bringing new technology in, it's usually just one of those band-aids we're actually trying to fix without understanding any of the other pretense that went into that. So I, I like that approach to start from understanding the why. Really well said. In an earlier comment that I fell in love with and wanted to start a conversation around was when you said the employees having a signal to do work. And I've definitely worked in a warehouse um, in, in tandem with John here in a galaxy far, far away, where I went to put together the most complicated swim lane puzzle of exactly what the processes were. And there were not one, but two spots where there was no signal for an employee to do the next thing. Mm -hmm. And just periodic checks had to take place to do that. So I love that that's something you're checking for in your process. And if you could give us just a little more detail on how you identify that when you're brand new to an organization, walking through the door to transform the place. Yeah, you know, that, that old value stream um, technique of starting from the shipping dock and working your way up is, 
you know, what feeds this spot, you know, and what's that trigger and you, you look for that. So it's not just, um, it's just not the value flow, but it's also the information flow around that. Um, and that's really important. So what, how do people know that they need to work on this? Is it because it all of a sudden it piles up and they can't get to that part of their desk um, or that part of the shop floor? Um, so, yeah, I think it's really important that um, you follow and you just really get to that, what some people call the critical path, right? So if I really have to get this thing out, what are the, the steps I have to go through to make sure it's got the fit form function, quality cost and, you know, on time. Um, and then you really determine, uh, you know, I had a, um, uh, Air Force Colonel who was working uh, air, uh, aircraft maintenance. And, um, you know, he took the approach of, he took everything out of the hangar. And he brought an aircraft in and said, okay, we need to do an isochronal inspection, which is a timed inspection, so many flight hours. And they started bringing in only the stuff they needed. And then they had this big square out on the tarmac of all the stuff that, that was just sitting around um, that they didn't need. So it's, it's really getting to that. You know, accounts call it zero-based budgeting, uh, which could be useful, but I think that's the other thing too, is some things become a fad. Like everybody wants to do zero-based budgeting now, or everybody wants to do this or that. Um, and because they don't want to look at the business. I don't understand that, um, you know, to open their eyes and say, well, you really have the answers here, right? You don't need to go outside. You have the answers here. And once you understand the processes and people and technology a little bit better, so then when you do go outside, you know exactly what you want. Someone's not going to sell you all the bells and whistles. Um, you know, that same story, the aircraft maintenance, you know, they wanted that. Now they got this down where they, you know, got the, the hangar and everything set up the way they need to, to do these inspections uh, as quickly as possible. They're like, well, we need to schedule the aircraft better because they were just using the old method of a board and chalked lines, you know, and, and magnets and stuff like that. And they talked to the consultants and they wanted to sell them a $2 million package to schedule aircraft for maintenance. And we're like, you can use a spreadsheet you know, don't go from pen and paper all the way to this, you know. And so they went back to the company and said, you know, I think we're, we're going to use a spreadsheet. We even developed the spreadsheet for them. And it was, you know, we had the macros and all that stuff just make it a little bit easier for them. And the company's like, well, you know, we'll, we'll sell to you for a million. And that, the, the colonel right then and there, he's like, you guys, <laughs> you know, who drops their price by 50%, right? So he knew that, you know, the, the jig was up. So, yes. Well, uh a good summary of that, just a PSA for the audience, is if you believe in silver bullets, it also means you believe in werewolves by default. So if there is no silver bullets. Get out there and learn your business. Yeah, I like that um, story. I have something similar. I was working with a, a warehouse that was in the middle of the automotive supply chain, and everyone up and downstream used uh, SAP and this facility used SAP as well. And, and they were having some issues with velocity. So in automotive, your uh, velocities have to be pretty high. Um, so I'm out there walking the shipping dock and you know this is where it starts because they're, they're running late on their orders, which is an expensive proposition in uh, T1 Automotive. So this employee has a trailer they're loading it and there's like these loading bays and i can just look down the dock and see like okay the next two trailers to go out are here and here like they're basically full the, the loading 
bay is full. And the employee goes halfway across the building to this computer terminal and spends 17 minutes there. So after, you know, one, once I was after the 15 minute mark, I just walked over there. I'm like, this is really interesting because, you know, I'm under the impression you're a loader, you know, what's going on here. And what was going on was, you know, the company had paid for one license for one computer for everyone to share. And anyone who's used SAP knows that, you know, it's not the most user-friendly uh, interface. And they were trying to get the right stuff in the right bucket of the software so that they could load the next trailer, right? Um, what we ended up doing there was actually getting rid of SAP and we used a um, SQL database with like a XML or a um, website interface for the employees because you could just IDOC in and IDOC out, you know, up and down the supply chain. But in the middle, all I have to do is load this trailer. So all I need to know is what's supposed to be on there and then like scan it as I go, right? And then at the end, just run a report, right? Bounce it off. Here's what I scanned. Here's what I was supposed to scan. Um, and of course, it was it was about a week. It took the uh, tech silo in that company to, to write this program, you know, so that it would show up on their uh, RF unit. Um, and it wouldn't let you load the wrong thing, you know, and all of that. So company already had the resources, you know, they were already paying for this technology department, um, super simple solution. It, but they just, you know, it wasn't people centered. They never stopped to think, wait a minute, what about the people doing the work? It was easier to just say, hey, you know, we already use SAP in our organization. We'll just buy another license, set up a computer here that's equidistant from everybody. Um, you know, the decisions were not made really with a view to the people doing the work, uh, and we were able to help them with that. So I think both of those are good examples of things that can happen, unfortunately, you know, kind of easily with companies if, if we're in a just move fast, get things done mode, right? Yeah, I mean, if you, if you are asking your people to do more work to feed a system that gives the bosses answers, then you, you might have a problem there. Um, I was flying back uh, from a client and um, I was sitting across from this executive from metal, uh, medical device uh, manufacturing. And he said, you know, we're, we're having a hard time with, you know, the, the ERP system and keeping track of the schedule and keeping track of customer um, orders and stuff like that. And um, I said, well, then stop using it. I said, let the let the processes, you know, you know, um, schedule themselves, right? So you just need to to get kind of that aggregate once in a while and feed that, set it up so that the ERP system takes that as an input instead of every single barcode and it trying to schedule people's like, you know, it, it just doesn't work that way. That the environment's too dynamic, um, and you don't want your people spending all that time doing work. Um, and it's funny because it's the same thing with problem solving, right? So we, we introduce forms to people, right? It's different levels of problem solving. And the, the mantra is if it takes longer to fill out the form than it does to solve the problem, then don't use the form. It's the same thing with technology. If it takes more to use the technology to get then to do the value added part of it, then don't use that technology. Find something that, that, 
that the, the person can actually focus more on value added than you know all the peripheral stuff. It's yeah. hard with a you know the sunk cost fallacy when you paid a million dollars for an ERP solution and it doesn't. That's definitely staying in. Oh, was I was I muted? Yeah. Well, we didn't hear you because you were on mute. You want to repeat yourself there, big guy? <laughs> yeah, I would love to. So oh I think I fixed. No, you let's go completely it. unmute because you don't you don't have feedback now, right? Because I did have that on. It was because the webcam was off. We're just technologically impaired. Go ahead. I know. We brought Sean Driscoll on and we can't figure out Zoom. We're like, we want people-centered improvement and I can't figure out how to unmute myself for a conversation. We've been doing this every weekend for how long, John? Long enough. Long enough for me to figure out a mute button. No, but, uh, <laughs> what I was saying there was it's a sunk cost fallacy where I spent a million dollars on an ERP solution that doesn't work. So I just infinitely keep people stuck in this, well, keep doing this thing that doesn't work because we already spent a million dollars on it. Even when like the annual cost of doing so exceed the deployment. I see that time and time again. Yeah, they probably yeah. never paid for the, for the implementation anyway, right? Yeah, I mean, I can't really help those people. You know, I can tell them, hey, you know, you know about the sunk cost fallacy. This isn't new, you went to business school. You know, it's not gonna change their behaviors necessarily. Um, Jake, I think we're familiar with a uh, employee productivity uh, protocol that got uh, improperly implemented. I mean, the way it was implemented, the, the people that were working on it clearly didn't understand the theory, what they were trying to do. Um, and it went for months with no outcomes because it mathematically can't. Uh, you're you're missing the key component here, um, and you know eventually the the company's solution was like to fire the project manager for it. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, if you have that kind of culture, I'm not sure I can help you at that point, right? Yeah, I mean, if if business says that um, you just can't employ this many people. Um, before you make any improvements, you've got to make that business decision. But I, I found attrition is is, um, is is enough for most businesses that you know as they make improvements. Um, unless you're you know you're a heavily um, service industry or a company, um, you know labor doesn't really make up that much. Um, and I really like the fixed labor model where you put the onus on the you know the sales part of the organization to say sell more stuff. You know, let's we engineers, let's create um, different products with, with different price points. You know, let's do something and saturate the market or go into adjacent spaces. You know, let's let's get creative that way because you, you gain a lot more cash flow and a lot more profit from increasing sales than you do from cutting costs. And, and that's the other thing. Um, you, you know, it's interesting is, you know, people are um, the rule followers to a certain degree, right? We we come up with um, these rules on how to interact, and um, sometimes we formalize them into a policy. And I think policies are good, um, but people need to look at the informal policies of the company. What do people do when they don't have the answers or they find a loophole that makes the job easier? 
while still getting you know the same quality and, and at the same cost. Um, you know, we did this with an organization that um, they allowed people to volunteer, and it was a union environment where the union workers weren't allowed to um, take off during the day to go do that. It was just part of the agreement that they had. Um, but we found out that. Uh, the unionized workforce was allowed to join managers for team building. So what did they do is they had a team building exercise with Habitat for Humanity, right? So they, they found a they created an informal policy to be able to allow everybody to work together on these type of things. And it, it's, it's like that through any organization. So, you know, when somebody says this is going really well, it's great to walk around and talk to people and say, you know, what, what are you doing when you run to this or run to that? And you find out that they've created these ad hoc rules uh, or policies on how to handle the situation. Um, and you want to take those into consideration when you make changes, right? Uh, and you mentioned something earlier about the business model, right? So uh, turning the business model into a business system, I, I think that's the, the best thing that a company can focus on. I mean, if your people can't get excited about the business system or the, the brand, Right, you know, adopting anything else, whether it's technology or some, you know, improvement methodology, is not going to help. It's it'll turn into the flavor of the month, right? Yeah, that's a good point. And the outcomes of any business's implementation of technology is relative to the existing culture um, and informal processes that are in place, right? So, if you have a company where the company implemented some kind of technology and laid off some people. The next time they go to implement technology, the people are going to do their damnedest to make sure that it never works, right? John, do you have any horror stories of uh, companies you've helped where there was some significant cultural hurdles you had to overcome? Well, yeah, actually, most of them, you know, when I'm, I'm called in, um, you know, for the, the larger companies, so um, there's something that's going on that's not working uh, the way that they want to. And so it's what, what are, you know, why are the people fighting it, right? And, you know, leadership sometimes sees it as, well, they're just being stubborn or, you know, they don't, you know, they don't want, they don't like it. They never tried it kind of thing. But if you listen to um, even the naysayers, right, there's a reason why they're saying it. Um, and so you've got to go and, and, and talk to the people and figure out what it is. Um, that that's keeping from doing it. They, you know, sometimes it's, well, if you do that, you're going to lose customers because customers buy from us. So it's interesting that people who are actually creating value have a better sense of the voice of the customer because they're the ones that get the stuff back if it's not right. Right. Leadership sometimes just gets a report and says, well, you know, we're, we hit it 95% of the time. Well, it's that 5% and any, new changes might actually make that 90 or 80 or 75. Uh, and the people doing the work know that. I recall in a uh, e-commerce shipping facility that the customer was reporting consistently that customers weren't getting their product. So going through our process, our ERP showed that we ship everything on time and full. And then FedEx even where the product was going before getting dispersed to its location, would show that everything they received, they processed in full and there was no issues. And come to find out that the hidden factory was once a day at about six o'clock in the morning, FedEx would bring back a full trailer's worth of unlabeled product. 
and then the team would hurry up and receive that back into their system for reprocessing to get it back out of the door. And I was like, oh my gosh, like is, this is not a summary of everything we set out not to do in like as we on our lean journeys. But I think that's like a classic, you know, uh, Deming's uh, point, you know, like the system got what it incentivized. That's the problem with having, you know, uh, quotas and, and numbers and stuff, right? The employees were doing exactly what the system was designed to incentivize them to do, right? Yeah, no one metric is, is, is sufficient, even, even if it's a really good metric, uh, because human nature is that they're, we're going to try to find that, that the least path of resistance, right? We, you know, we want to do work, we want to create, we want to be productive, but we don't want to like be dead tired when we get home, you know, after doing it. Um, so yeah, it's, you, you've got to balance those things out. John gives a, a, a potent aphorism. We, we had previously worked in a cost plus environment. And in that environment, somebody would always go, well, I don't care what it costs as long as we get it done and serve the customer, whatever it takes to get the product out of the door. And John always makes the McDonald's analogy and he says, no, we have to get the right product at the right time with the sufficient quality and all of those factors matter. Because if somebody frisbees you a burger patty out of the door, you're not going to be happy. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, it's the old, uh, I use this when I'm coaching, you know, mostly frontline workers, right? But I'll constantly hear people pitting quality against efficiency. You know, well, we can do a good job or we can do a fast job, pick one. No, hogwash. You don't accept that in your own life. If you go to McDonald's you, and you order a Big Mac, you expect a Big Mac, not a filet of fish. But you also expect it to be a fast food restaurant. So you're already demanding that of all of the people you interact with at work. When was the last time that you griped about how long the line was at Walmart? Okay, so if you're allowed to gripe, then our customers are allowed to gripe, right? There's uh, speed or efficiency as well as quality, right? And cost, and we're gonna be good at all of them. Yeah, you, you've got to figure out what the, the customer's willing to pay for, right? And, and not really over deliver on that as well. Um, because they're not willing to pay for it. And then you've just, you know, you've kind of thrown money at something that, that you're not getting a return on and the customer's not going to appreciate. So it's, it's doing what the customer needs. You know, there's the Kano model of, you know, delight your customers. Um, but, you know, what is it that would delight them, right? So if they, if they buy because you can consistently get a good quality product or a service to them continuously, um, you start lowering the price, Great, but um, that's not why I buy from you. Um, and as good as Toyota is, they're still raising their prices and they figure out what people are willing to pay for. So you want more horsepower? Oh yeah, you're gonna have to pay quite a bit for that. Um, and, and so on and so forth. And so that, that's just part of the business, right? It's figuring out what the customers want and what they're willing to pay for. Um, and then you go back and you work on your cost to make sure you can make that profit that you want. We suffer from that a lot in service industries where scope will naturally creep with you know process variation within a business. And we're quick to just keep accepting that scope as it evolves and creeps over time until before you know it, we're doing stuff that had nothing to do with an original contract or anything that's in place. And we keep saying yes, instead of, is that even what the customer wants from us, really? And if it is, you're absolutely right. I got to pay for it. Now, if I could just switch subjects for just a moment, 
Sean, I love that we initially connected over LinkedIn and you constantly add value to all of our banter that really like reflects the guy you are today. And so I've got to ask in your, in your LinkedIn world, what started that journey where you're, you are all over LinkedIn and I see you all across in the Lean and Six Sigma space. Um, tell me what, what's your approach in the social media world? Well, it, it's to learn, uh, it's to, to interact. Um, I, I think I'll always be learning. Uh, I think it's kind of interesting to see how people approach things and, and the different viewpoints. Um, not too long ago, I, I ran across a gentleman by the name of David Tease. He talks about dynamic capabilities. I thought that was really interesting. And he gets into the, the sensing, right? So how do you sense when something's going to change and then start preparing for it ahead of time? Um, I was working with... Um, uh, a working group for one of the undersecretaries of the Air Force on, um, you know, working with the Air Force culture, the capabilities, and we really got into, the, you know, what is a capability, and it's it's competencies plus capacity, and you need both of those things. And so, what kind of competencies? So you see a lot of people with competencies, but they're not ca capable. And why is it right? Do, do it's sometimes it's wherewithal. You know, we have the will, but not the willpower to do stuff. Sometimes we don't have the time. I think that's kind of the biggest thing that people fall on. But when people tell me, well, I could do it if I just had the time, um, but I know people who can do it in that amount of time. So what, is, what other part of that capacity are we looking at? Or maybe you're substituting one competency for another. So it's those kind of things. I, I, I really like um, hearing different viewpoints. Uh, and I like bantering, you know, being in the military, you know, we're always, you know, giving each other a hard time. And um, you know, I'm part of a veterans group. We do the same thing there too. You know that you know they make fun of the Air Force or they make fun of the Marines and you know those kind of things. So you know there there's some um, some business camaraderie uh, you know that I, I look for not just on LinkedIn but um, and I, and I want to make sure that um, you know that I, if I see something and I don't think it's right, you know sometimes I, I've got to say something. Uh, but I, I've learned three rules and this has really helped me out is. The, the first one is if I see run across something on LinkedIn and, and like, does something need, does someone need to say something about this? Right. And, and if so, then I say, uh, do I need to say something about this? Uh, and if the answer is yes, it's do I need to say something about this now? Um, and so a lot of times it's like, well, no, I, it can wait or I don't need to say anything about this at all. Uh, it's got, got me in a lot of trouble because um, my knee jerk reaction is like, you know, that's, wait a minute, that's not right. Can you send those three rules to every major news organization, please? <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of a good uh, service member joke. So a soldier, a Marine, and an airman are deployed, and they set up their tent, and this storm comes along and just floods their tents with mud. And the soldier goes, this is inefficient. The Marine goes, cool, I love sleeping in the mud. And the airman goes, why is there a tent in my hotel room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we think of the Air Force as the country club of the Air Force. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're great, my great organization. Very smart, but um, yeah. yeah. So my, my, my uh, joke is, what's the difference between God and a four-star general? God doesn't think he's a four-star general. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of respect for the service members. My my uh, brother's in the army, so I get to hear all of the good uh, service member jokes. So, um, but bringing it back to people-centered technology improvements, we live in a world that requires technology. So, 
I've worked in very few situations where the company could get away with zero technology. I have worked in a couple where a company could have a viable business without major technology. Obviously, you have to have a phone, and nowadays, even a cell phone is pretty much ubiquitous. Um, but more, ma you know, more major technology. So we do live in that world. Uh, the challenge is the methodology, the purpose, and the why behind the technology, and taking the time to make sure that technological improvements are actually improving the lives of the uh, people doing the work. So, Sean, do you have experience coaching companies with technology implementation or improvements um, where you got to sort of guide them through the process of, hey, you know, let's go to where the work is done and talk to the people doing the work. Um, tell us a little bit about that. So manufacturing has always been kind of pragmatic by nature, right? So um, I, I've noticed uh, not too long ago, a couple of years, that um, you had a, a world-class international uh, manufacturing company that was running a piece of equipment with Windows XP. So they're they're not they're like, why it, it works? It doesn't need upgrades. It's you know that's, that's so manufacturing has been uh, kind of pragmatic that way. Um, but when people are looking to automate, you know, a lot of times these smaller uh, mid-sized businesses are like, well, we, we can't afford it. I mean, what, what's it really going to do for me? Uh, and when you can point out, you know, what the critical, so you have KPIs, right? And everybody loves these KPIs, but behind every KPIs is a process that's key. Um, and you find out what about that process um, that if you made it, faster or you made it more reliable or you were able to get better quality and, and maintain or make the safety better, um, what would that be? And so there are things, and, and I'm plugged into the technology um, community here in the Charlotte metro area, is, you know, I, I understand all these things and we've used some of these things like edge tier um, calculations, right? So now NVIDIA and Raspberry Pi have these devices for $100 that will do calculations, not have to run it up to the cloud to do those things. And so they can make those decisions a little bit quicker for somebody. Um, and I think that's, you know, the, the steps that we look at is first is, is it going to make um, the job safer? Can it make the job faster? Um, can it be, can it make it so one person do can do it when two are required and do it safely, right? And then can the technology do something that humans can't? And then you can take it from there. A lot of times it's just focus on making it safer and making it quicker with the same quality or improving the quality uh, more consistently, then you're gonna see a bigger uh, benefit from that. Um, and there's the payback is immediate. And so that's one of the things that we look at is we make sure that our clients get the payback within a month's time for a lot of this stuff. They don't have to, you know, they don't have to wait two years to get their payback on it. Um, a lot of other companies you can buy a, you know, kind of a, a package deal uh, to go with stuff, but it's usually spending time with the people on taking some of the waste out and making those processes more repeatable and taking it as far as you can with the, with the people that you have and the technology you have. Then you know exactly what technology to add to it. Um, with that pharma company, we were able to take um, a lot of the sensors off, right? And then focus on, you know, how the machine is set up and then training people on that. And then the sensors were geared towards, is the machine set up like the way it's supposed to? Did it creep out? Did someone change it when they weren't supposed to? 
kind of thing. And then, then that's set, and then you can move on to the next thing. Um, I, there's one uh, very large uh, company, and I, and I respect them very much, so I'm not going to give the name, but they wanted me to help them sell to the small and mid-sized businesses. And they had um, this kind of briefcase with a, a laptop and software in it, and it showed you know, how they all their devices could work together. And I said, well, what, what's the starting point for this automated system? And they said, it's like $250,000. I said, you, you'll never get into a small and mid-sized business that way. You know, you, you've got to make it more. I said, what's the cheapest component you have? And they said, well, it's this edge tier router we have. It's $2,000. I go, that's the starting point. You know, if you can show a business how to use that, right, to, to gain some, then, then you've got the snowball rolling downhill and then you can start building off of that. Some companies can, can take those prepackaged systems and do fine with them. But most businesses, I think, are going to run into problems. And it'll be kind of one of those things stuck off to the side that like, yeah, we run that, you know, when we have a change. Yeah, for you to call out a 30-day ROI is astounding. Like I, I haven't seen a technology solution that had a well-defined 12-month ROI. So I, I like the approach that you have to have a deliverable amount of value for this to even make sense. Like that just makes logical sense. Yeah, and you know, the way that technology is, it, it's, it's easier and it's so much easier to... Um, Put stuff together before you'd have to buy all one brand or one type to do it. Mm-hmm. But now you've got um, you've got these um, industry 4.0 technologies that it'll read um, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, um, landline, you know, Cat5, any signal you send to it, it'll be able to take it and turn it into whatever you want it to do. You know, whether it's counting or it's taking visual images and, and checking it against the database to make sure that that that's what the product or, you know, the information is supposed to look like. John, we made it 40 minutes in without saying industry 4.0. There it was. <laughs> God damn it. Lost that bet. So a uh, good segue into kind of the last uh, thing I wanted to talk about on this subject. And that is uh, as technology gets more complex, um, the solutions are more and more out of the box. Uh, that can be because the, uh, technological knowledge is not a core competency of the company consuming the technology um, or other factors where trying to build something from scratch just isn't feasible. So mm-hmm. ERP or WMS is the classic example. Like there's not a lot of companies building a, a WMS. Um, but that's true of, of pretty much all our technology solutions. So we run into this problem and, you know, all the time which is the technology does determine the process to a certain extent um, and can even, you know, be a barrier to sort of the best process for creating value. Um, So talk to me a little bit about that, where a company has to use some technology. It's not ideal uh, and how you deal with it and how the company sort of feels and thinks and acts around that. So the first thing is that, um, yeah, the companies are building these bigger, you know, they're going for this AI system, Watson uh, of sorts. But I think also that technology has made it easier for people to buy it themselves and use it themselves. Um, you know, worked with a, a, a company that was doing uh, aluminum casting. So they had a foundry uh, sand castings and they would take it into a CNC shop 
and then do it to GM or Ford specifications, right? And so this is for vacuum forming and those type of things. Um, and GM's only accepting um, 3D scans now. They're not doing the CMM, you know, the computer doing the points, you know, to make sure mm -hmm. that the molds to spec. Um, you know, th this company is able to buy 3D cameras and put it on every single CNC machine and scan it. And so they can scan it as they're, CNC, you know, machining it to get it to spec. Um, that's fine. That's a lot better than somebody, you know, that they were talking to that was like, well, we're going to have to set up this cloud service. And then we're going to have to have these uh, computers, you know, they're going to do these calculations and, you know, and then we're going to have to train your people on how to do this stuff. I, I think that the, the flip side of it is that there's some stuff that you can put together yourself. And to me, that goes along the lines of once you understand your people process and technologies and you know, you know, where the triggers and the key points are for creating that value, then you know what kind of technology you can build off of. Um, and if you need to retrofit machines, you know, I, I know somebody who's a IOT geek and I mean, he really geeks out on this stuff. I mean, he can measure anything, you know, to, to get the result you want. So humidity, vibrations, sound, light, pictures, whatever it is. So you can retrofit stuff. Um, and then when you're ready to buy that million dollar piece of equipment, you know exactly what you want from it. Um, you don't have to buy this in case that happens. Or So that puts the power into the, the business, the company's hands. You know, they're not relying on somebody who's the technology expert so much that they can start telling them what they want. Yeah, it's a good reminder that uh, we do have to upgrade our technology. It's it's a non-negotiable, whether it's retrofitting or uh, replacement. Um, I'm reminded of the McLaren F1, you know, at the time was a um, mind-blowing supercar, you know, Gordon Murray. Um, and the only way to fix it is with a compact laptop that has hardware inside of it, which in 1991 or whatever, when the car came out, it was a cutting edge laptop. You know, now it looks like a boat anchor, um, and you can't get it. And it only runs off of, you know, windows three point something, you know, like it's almost a telegraph machine. Um, and I, I believe McLaren has already created a solution or was working on it, but these laptops were selling for like $30,000 on eBay because it was the only way to keep your multi-million dollar, you know, supercar running. <laughs> uh, so it's a good example of, you know, at some point you, you do have to change, you know, you're going to have to evolve. The question is whether you do it in a people-centered way, you know, that actually helps the folks doing the work to execute the value at process um, or if you or if you don't and i think that's an easy uh, pitfall you know as a business manager you have your conferences right your technology conferences maybe your you know your pro mat um, all of these sales channels to make you aware of potential solutions um, and if you don't have a really good grasp of how the value is created, you know, at, at the point of creation, you know, at Gemba, um, I think it's, it can be easy to pull the trigger on something, you know, and then get uh, a few months in and realize that, you know, AGVs are not the right material for this clamp only <laughs> paper products warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, little inside joke there, Sean. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it, 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 it happens all the time. You know, the, the executive or the boss, you know, the owner of the company goes and, and he goes to these trade shows and it's like, you know, that we could use that because that's going to help us do such and such. Um, but every company, you know, produces value uniquely. I mean, whether it's, you even look at pizza restaurants, right? Or pizza, uh, the chains that they have, they all do it differently, right? And you get a different result from it. Uh, it's the same thing with car manufacturing or anything that people make. If they're making the same thing, they're not going to make it the same way. Um, and so you've got to be sensitive to that and what's crucial. Um, and one of the things that, you know, you have the conversations with, uh, you know, with the leadership is, is that when you when you come in in the morning, what do you know? Are you comfortable with that? It's going to be fine. And what are the things that you're more concerned about? Right. So it's the stuff that you're concerned about is the things that you need to start improving on and the stuff that you are comfortable with are potentials for automation, right? If, if you know it's been consistent and people are going consistently, then maybe you're able to kind of close that loop for them and then free that person up. But we also make sure that the people are trained on how to use that technology. So they go from actually maybe doing the work to actually working on the machines that do the work. Um, and that keeps everybody employed. But that's, you know, our model is to, is to fix labor, right? So if you've got 500 people, then when we're done, you're going to have 500 people, but your costs are going to be down. You're going to have better quality and you're going to have new customers. Yeah. I like the imminent, you know, practicality of that. Um, and I think any level of the organization or education can grasp that, you know, if it's, if you're comfortable with it, that's a good candidate for automation. If you're not probably shouldn't touch it. You know, it's probably out of control, unstable, right? Automation is going to just compound your headaches. Um, so great uh, conversation and comments on people-centered technology improvements. Uh, Sean Driscoll, president of Driscoll Organizational Solutions. We really appreciate you joining us this week. How can folks get in touch with you? Well, I've got a, a presence on LinkedIn. Uh, you visit our website at driscollsolutions.com. Um, and, you know, you can give us a call at uh, 803-431-7810. All, right. All right. And it is Sean, right? Because I've been saying CN for the longest time. Yeah. <laughs> well, that yeah, depends on uh... which side of the Atlantic you were born on, love. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, for what John just did. There. Now, you can tell that Paul is from Scotland originally, by the way, he says good. Yeah. But he's he's really he's picked up that that Aussie accent pretty good, but it it still comes out a little bit. So did he move down to Australia? Yeah, I think it's been a while. He just got his uh, naturalized citizenship down there. So uh, one of my uh, one of my clients, uh, he says he's from England, but the way he talks, it's, it's he's Scottish. And so I talked to someone else, and they're like, "Well, he's in Northern England." <laughs> <Yeah. God. laughs> he's two feet south of that line on the map yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah. definitely well sean it was a pleasure having you here today for everybody out there in youtube land be sure to check out uh, sean driscoll and driscoll organizational solutions especially if you have a technology issue that you need help with sean we really appreciate your expertise for all of our listeners and fans out there Goodbye.